Welcome yeah. to the Cosmic Eye Show. I am your host, Jason Napolitano, and I have a special guest on today, Mr. Stephen Piper. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me on, Jason. Um, uh, it's always good to talk with you. It's always good to talk with you, sir. I have known Stefan for many years, uh, but we're, we've been talking lately, and I decided to have him come on, and he graciously agreed. Stefan is the author of Greyhound, uh, Waiting for Andre During the Apocalypse, Ob- Observations of a Dead Man. I'm reading down your, your list on, on Amazon, by the way, because <laughs> it's an extensive list. My book, is, yeah. it's not so tough. There's, there's one book, so you know I don't have to remember a whole lot, so that helps me out. But you're most well known for your book, Greyhound, and your latest book is Waiting for Andre. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about your, your work. We're going to talk about the artistic process, writing, et cetera, et cetera, um, and hopefully uh, have some fun while we're doing it. So yeah. I did, uh, did want to kind of set you up a little bit. I'm going to read your bio from Amazon if you're there. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a yeah. quick little piece from your bio here about Stephen Piper, yep. born in Pennsylvania, raised in California, England, and various parts of Alaska, attended school at University of Alaska, Anchorage, and the University of Los Angeles, California. I went there as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Served honorably in the U.S. Marine Corps and is a veteran of the Persian Gulf War. Thank you, by the way, since we're oh, coming you. up to Veterans Day soon. We uh, are, yeah. Once a resident of Alaska, the mayor of Nome asked him to leave and never return due to a minor misunderstanding. I can't imagine it was that minor, but, <laughs> but, I, but I, appreciate, I appreciate the understatement of that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you talk about that. Uh, yeah. So that one single aspect in my bio, because I get asked about that by just about everybody. And especially yeah. when I'm talking at like middle schools or high schools, they're always like, yeah. You know, Mr. Piper, can you tell me? <laughs> I'm like, well, <laughs> here's what I like. I like how you set that up with Mr. Piper. Like, it, I love it. I like the formality of the kids because I wish I would run into some kid that would call me Mr. Napolitano. I'm like, you know, mostly they're just like, hey, idiot, get out of the way. Stop, stop getting in front of my skateboard. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's right. Like, I- I uh, so I saw like a tweet the other day from uh, there was uh, the author who had written the screenplays for I think like the Men in Black films and he said he was sitting in a coffee shop and there was a bunch of kids next to him talking to him uh, you know like they were talking amongst themselves about mm-hmm. Men in Black and the origin and who wrote it and they were confused about it and he turns around and he's an older guy now right obviously yeah, and he's yeah. like an old crotchety looking white guy or whatever and he says well kids maybe i can clear that up for you and the kids just like roasted him and threw him under the bus they were like sir we don't need to hear anything from you (laughs) exactly so you know but but, uh, yeah but you know uh, in schools when i talk to the kids in schools it's they're always super polite and really nice and usually like you know kids in like middle school grades and the early high school grades you know they haven't really uh uh, like fully escaped into their own personality that mm-hmm. that you know that they're setting up to go out into the world with they're still part of the family unit they're still developing they're still yeah. mentally and emotionally like creating a self version of them that has the family with it right so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely you know and that's uh, this is a completely off the subject thing but that's why I'm always like warning kids like I mean you're really developing that personality up until I'd argue into your, you know, early thirties and stuff in some cases, even longer for some people. But that's one of the mm-hmm. reasons why I think like, for example, um, 
you know, getting started into psychedelics or drugs or something like when you're too young, you're, you're still, you're like wet still, you know, you haven't even dried yet. You're a painting that's still forming. And so to throw psychedelics into that, I, I always kind of, not that that we were talking about psychedelics. I was listening to Terrence McKenna this morning. So it's like fresh. Oh yeah. yeah. It's fresh in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) It's something still on the plate. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, absolutely. you know, I, I, I'm all for expanding one's mind just, you know, wait till, uh, wait till you've, uh, set your personality up a little bit or you're, you know, kind of tampering with the, uh, with the, uh, the growth pattern, I, I would argue. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I think those types of problems that kids and parents have with the journey through life, it's the same today as it was, uh, like when you and I were children yeah. and as it was when our parents were children and, you know, we, as older people now, cause you know, we're, we're the like young at heart set, <laughs> you know, oh, young at- <laughs> man, here we go. <laughs> young at the young at heart set. And, and that's actually a reference to earlier jokes before the show, Stephen and I were talking and I was driving down the strip and I saw, uh, I saw a big billboard that said, join our 50 plus club. You- get rewards for being young at heart or something like that. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm nearly 50 and uh, I'm, I'm young at heart. So, you know, they're pushing, they're pushing that back, you know, further and further. It'd be like, you'd be 35 and young at heart pretty soon. Watch this. So yeah, they're going to market that to just yeah. about everybody because, yeah. you know, they can keep everybody in those gated communities and, you know, I'm not knocking gated communities. I live in one, but you know, where I'm at, you don't got to be 55 <laughs> <laughs> or 35 and older in yeah. another 10 years so. exactly so you know so we're, we're working we're, we're working young and hard around here so anyway um speak yeah speaking of so it's the eight yeah you're right though i mean it's it's you know you know it's always challenging i think we as is as, as you know older when we get a bit older we look back and we think wow you know we had it so much harder and you know when my in my day it was like this and that and so on and speaking of that i mean uh, you know, Greyhound, you're writing that from a perspective of 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 a, of a different time and era now. I am, and that was uh, that was, you know, like everyone has the project in their mind that they have the book that they want to write, and it's usually about their life or it's about some idea that they've been carrying with for years, and whether or not, as an artist, you've been able to get that off your chest, or you know. Uh, like fully flesh that out and type that out and get it done and feel accomplished, you know, and have that sense of um, actualization for writing. Uh, You know, the big part of that is, uh, you know, is just staying true with the idea that you've been carrying for all those years. And Greyhound was that for me. Greyhound was, you know, my experiences as a kid growing up in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Um, you know, the story is set in a very analog period of time. This is before uh, the proliferation of, you know, uh, the internet, or even this was the verge of video games. This was the verge of, uh, you know, larger mass consumed electronics. We were, you know, just holding the Walkman at that point. So speaking of that, I love the, uh, I love the uh, graphic on the front of that. The oh, Walkman you. sketch and the and the tape with the with the you know there's a, there's a cassette tape with some of its tape pulled out and stuff and mm-hmm. that's a, a big reminder of being young. You remember how frustrating <laughs> that was, by the way, when one of your tapes would, would, would get wound up and you're, it's just gone, it's ruined. Right, right. Or you know, like Unless if you wanted to make it. like 
Right. Or like if you wanted to make like a mixtape, right? Then you got oh, the pencil man. and you stuck it in there and you would advance it to just the right spot. So when you hit play and record on the machine, you'd be like, oh. okay, I'm making a mixtape. It was an endeavor. And the other thing, kids, like a lot of kids don't realize because of, you know, the ease at which you can record things digitally is like the fact that, and I know you did this and I know, and I did this, you would sit around and listen to the radio and you would mm-hmm. have your little stupid handheld recorder, you know, with your cassette player and you mm-hmm. would try to record songs off the radio live oh. off the radio you did this, all day right? long yeah yeah all day long you're i like mean this was for the, you're, you're waiting for my sharona to come on <laughs> and you're like god i gotta get this because of course you have no money to go actually buy the single or buy the album itself so you're like no not at all record it on your dad's <laughs> old like tape recorder your mom's old tape recorder or whatever you were you scrounged up you know it, it was it was incredible and, and, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier in the week when we were talking. It's a, it's a different mindset when you're in an analog world versus a digital world. And that's one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that kids, some, you know, some of them are trying to recreate it, but I'm sorry that they haven't been able to experience that because it's kind of a loss. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. And I'll say, uh, you know, that's, that's usually the talk that I give when, I'm with high schoolers. Uh, you know, usually we talk about the difference of uh, like my life where I was at when I was in high school versus their life where they're at in high school. And especially the reality of the digital world and social media, because a lot of kids that I've talked to, they're rejecting it like hand out. They're like, yeah. because all of us who are a little bit older, we grew up where we saw this animal being birthed and growing into this, I don't want to call it a monster, but let's, for the sake of this, you know, yeah. we've seen the monster get It massive. has a monstrous size, size and it has a monstrous, you know, underbelly for sure. Yeah, correct. You know? And, you know, there's, there's a whole mythology that's being built up around that when you watch a lot of uh, TV and media anymore. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these kids, they've looked to themselves and said, you know what, I don't want that in my life. And what, you know, what am I going to do to extricate? And I know a lot of kids who don't have Facebook, who don't have Snapchat, who don't have Twitter, who, you know, they don't do that. And they have flip phones and their parents have these smartphones and they have the OnePlus phone or the Apple phone or the, yeah, that's what, that's what's really going on. And I'm seeing more and more. I love the plug for the OnePlus phone. We were just talking about OnePlus. OnePlus, Yeah. yeah, Like, like they're giving you free phones. You're paying for that thing. You don't need to give them a plug. (laughs) They don't need me. Because I'm trying to ask them earlier. I'm like, what the hell is OnePlus? And apparently it's a great phone. So I'm not knocking the OnePlus phone by any means. You know, I'm just, uh, I had not heard of it. So there's my technological uh, disadvantage. But no, I think think you're right about that. And I I have to applaud and say, God bless any of these kids that are are unplugging because it's, you know, it's an interesting thing though. I had, I talked about this a few years ago. I don't know if, I don't think it was with you because we haven't spoken in a while, but I was talking um, with somebody about uh, how I thought like with all this proliferation of social media and all this connection and interconnectivity and and all the technology and stuff, kids are probably going to go kind of Luddite 
in order to, you know, let out my meaning like anti-technology yeah. and not, not, anti to tell, not to tell yeah. you. Back before the flood. Yeah. Back, yeah, yeah. yeah. back before the flood. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's like you, you, um, that's the only way to go in terms of like rebelling against your parents. If you do the same thing they do, they just, they're going to show up where you are. If your mom's on Facebook, you don't want to be there. It's not cool. So no, no, like, not like, <laughs> you know, so it's interesting that they're kind of going back to, to doing, you know, and I see, I like, I'm, I really take my hat off to these kids, like the ones that are really getting like the craft movement and the art stuff. And they're like mm-hmm. doing things the hard way. Like, I'm not just going to, learn how to play a mandolin i'm gonna learn how to craft my own mandolin and then i'm gonna play it and i'm only gonna and i'm gonna tune it like in the medieval style you know what i mean like like they really go to the nth degree to learn this stuff oh without a doubt yeah i'm very impressed with those sorts of young people that can do that you know i'll tell you my uh you know my uh my brother-in-law who's about to get married i was talking with him the other day and i said uh okay well you guys are moving and you're going to get new furniture and you know have you thought about all that because they were living with us for a while and we were helping them out because they're younger i think they're 24 25 and he said to me and it blew me away and i almost fell over jason i was like he he said yeah you know what i think i'm gonna build my couch and I'm going to build my uh, like love seat. I was like, what? Like, so what are you talking about? Wow. He's like, oh no. Yeah. And so what you have just said and hit upon is probably everybody 27 and under. And I think that that movement may or may not have something to do with the idea of the matrix through culture. I don't know. I haven't given up much thought, but I think there's something there that kids grew up seeing the matrix, realizing that it was a thing, realizing that since they were born, high speed broadband internet has been a part of their life. Social media has been a part of their life and they see the matrix and they're like, Oh, Oh, that's, that's my life. And like that guy, Neo is unplugging. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a good metaphor for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you're right about that. I, I, I could, I could see, I could see where that would, uh, would, 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 would appeal and would, would break through. You know, and and again, like I just like the 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 other side of it too is that um, these kids were a lot of them were raised, you know, understanding um, environmental problems, understanding problems with economics and the distribution of wealth and so on. And I think they have a pretty good, pretty good sense that like what you know what we're living in in terms of our economy is an artificial construct and it's 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 impossible to maintain without cheap oil and cheap oil will not be a thing in the future oil will not be a thing in the future so when you think okay the whole economy is based on this system of cheap cheap energy that's freely available you know the party's over you know, they've yeah. heard, they've seen the videos about peak oil and they understand the problems with, you know, greenhouse gas mm-hmm. and global warming and all this. And so I think they realize, like, I've got to scale back my thought and my intention and my sort of lifestyle demands in order mm-hmm. to survive. And mm-hmm. I think they're being very sensible about it. It's like, I'm going to learn how to bake bread. I'm going to learn how to grow some vegetables. Like, I mean, a lot of these kids are into the permaculture movement and you know, mm-hmm. biodynamic gardening, organic gardening, all these different different types of, you know, regenerative type gardening. They're making their own clothes, a lot of them, you know, and I see this kind of stuff. They're using technology, but they're using it in the right way. They're using it in a, in a positive way. And I, and I think that's a, that's very heartening. I, li- I like to see that disconnection, but 
connection when you mm-hmm. choose. I think right. that's the best way with technology. That's my feeling. Um, I think you're right about that. And I think the difference was that now uh, kids have instant access to any and all information uh, at their fingertips online. And whether they have context with it or not is another matter. That's what an education is for. Uh, but back then when like exactly. you and I were growing up, uh, so we didn't have any of that. And we really had to figure it out. Like we were latchkey kids. We were on our own. Uh, I think, you know, like uh, all of the Gen Xers are like referred to as like the lost generation. Is that right? It, I think, I think so, that's yeah. What, yeah. yeah, that's what they call us. And that that's why, like we were without parents, without mentors. We were literally, uh, you know, set into the void and told to figure it out while the older, you know, adults were doing their thing, whether it was work set or to the void. I love that. I felt, yeah. I definitely felt set into the void when my teenage years, I'll tell you that I'm sure you did as well. It's like oh, without it's a, doubt. Bleak, a bleak time, but uh, mm-hmm. no, you're, you're, you're right about that. And it was, you know, I, that's why I think uh, I'd highly recommend to younger people that listen and even older people that want to have sort of a nostalgic experience, but your book Greyhound does a great job of contextualizing that time. And I think it's important uh, t- for people to kind of understand the trajectory and sort of history of, of, of technology things. Not that it's specifically about that, but you can kind of, you know, you can pick up clues about what life was like in, in earlier generations. And it's important to kind of see how that has developed and how culture and society have changed over time so mm-hmm. that you can see where you are in that continuum, you know, yep. and, you know, I think both Joseph Campbell, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, but, both Joseph Campbell, Young, Merce Eliade, you know, Rollo May, multiple psychologists and scholars have spoken about how, you know, a lack of sort of contextual understanding, a lack of mythology and a lack of yeah. continuity. It causes a sense of, of nihilism, essentially. You just feel adrift and alone and, and without any moorings <clears throat> or sort of like... Um, Mm-hmm. connection to something bigger than yourself. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And so back then, you know, like the big thing was, and this is the story of Greyhound is, uh, you know, like this little boy who's 12, he's abandoned by his mother at a, uh, at a bus stop in Stockton, California. His mother then says that he has to travel across the country unaccompanied, which would be a horrifying aspect in today's world. If a parent dropped their child off, at a Greyhound bus station in Stockton, California, people would be like, <laughs> it would be all over the news. And yes, we still have unaccompanied minors flying on planes and on, and on buses, shockingly. But a lot of that's a lot more understood and controlled. And there's more uh, like uh, so guide rails for that. But, sure. you yeah. know, but, but then on, on the bus and in that story, uh, the main character, Sebastian or Sebi, he encounters his first real mentor in life. And that happens to be uh, a fellow who gets out of prison and he's going home to see his mother before she passes away uh, in uh, up in New York. So, uh, and they traveled, you know, side by side the whole way through for the next three days. And that's the journey. That's the story. Um, it came out 10 years ago in 2010. Uh, it was a bestseller for a long time. Uh, the American uh, Library Association, they picked it up and they really championed the book. So what happened was in a lot of the school districts, uh, they put it on the reading list and the teachers would 
oftentimes say, okay, kids, do you want to read Catcher in the Rye or would you like to read Greyhound? And they would show <laughs> my book. That's and, fantastic. Yeah, That's it's fantastic. A, yeah, and you know, I love Catcher in the Rye. It's a, such a dark yeah. book. But, yeah. you know, kids going through angsty periods with angsty emotions, they all like always say later like yeah i probably shouldn't have read that in high school (laughs) it's probably not a good it is kind of a funny uh you know when you look at it like it's kind of a strange book to read in high school i think it's 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 i'm not discouraging it but man if you're going through a period of time where you're feeling alienated and you know and frustrated and angry as a young man Really, probably not the best book for it. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I agree. I agree. And, and, and I think... I think Greyhound is much more appropriate, my friend. Yeah, and... And, and it's funny because that was the conversations librarians have been having since the 70s when they saw reactions to the books and reactions from the family. Uh, you know, I mean, all the families and all the kids who read that book, everyone yeah. loves it for sure. Yeah. And even as an adult, you love it more. Um, but they were like, we need to find something to have as an alternative, not to take Catcher away, but as an alternative. And because of that, you know... Um, even still to this year, like there's probably, at, you know, two points of the year, like in August, I'll sell maybe 8,000 copies. And in uh, January, I'll sell 8,000 copies a month. But, you know, uh, I'm, I'm always floating around 1,000, 2,000 like, copies per month. And we're a decade on. That's, that's fantastic. That's what yeah. you call a perennial seller, my friend. That's what you're looking for in life. You know right. I mean? and, right. And, you know, that's, that's that is an artist's dream to have Absolutely. that kind of a thing and uh you know uh, i think my success has only uh been bolstered by the american library association and by the schools and by the teachers That's because a beautiful you know, thing. yeah and it's almost a natural grassroots thing like because you won't hear me on npr you won't see me in the wall street journal or uh you know uh you know, uh, find an article where someone's talking to me in any yeah. of the newspapers across the United States. Uh, well, no, it's but, interesting because yeah. there's, there's a whole sort of array of, of excellent writers who aren't as well known because they're not necessarily in the quote unquote popular media, but they're selling thousands and thousands of books and they're bestsellers on Amazon. And we don't, mm-hmm. we don't hear as much about it, which is why I was excited to have you come on and, and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, um, I appreciate know, because, that. No, but it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a challenging thing, you know, to make a, a living as a writer. And I respect the way that you've been able to carve out this niche for yourself on, on there. And you were very early in the Amazon game, which is super cool. And, you know, you've, you've had great, great success on there. <clears throat> Do you, um, yeah. I mean, if you're trying, like, for example, I just like, I know you speak a lot to, to younger people and stuff. I wanted to kind of share with the audience when people that might be creative people that are trying to kind of make a living at their art, do you have some things that you like to point out that have been helpful for you, you know, tips and, and yeah. mindsets that have worked to help you become successful as an artist, both productively and financially? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I do. Um, I will say, uh, you know, first things off the bat that I say to all the uh, eighth grade classes or the ninth and tenth grade uh, classes that I'll have talks with, which is one, just just take what you're doing seriously. And I know that sounds almost parental, but, you know, my son's 12 years old now. He's at the point where I was at when I was on the bus traveling across the country unaccompanied back in 1981, holding on to my Walkman. He's at that point now. And as his father, I tell him, 
whatever it is that you're doing, just, just take it serious. Even if it's just for today, focus on today, what you're doing today. And, you know, if, if you need help, don't be afraid to ask. Um, I read a lot of the books that come out on, you know, about like writing advice and they're really difficult because mm. I think they set up uh, like, you know, almost a realm of failure that you're going to have to go through and figure out on your own. Uh, I think King's on writing book, you know, Stephen King's on writing book. That's probably the only one that I, I really was like, okay, merit to it because mm. all the things he tells you not to do, you could literally highlight all those things and do them and yet be successful. And then you can do the things he says to do and you can highlight those and you will be super successful. So, you know, you got to take both sides of that coin and apply it in your life. And, you know, I would say a detailed outline, you know, Stephen King will like knock on my door right now (laughs) and give me a lecture for saying that. But, you know, yeah, you should have a detailed outline. I work from an outline as well. I can't, I can't, and I'll deviate and I'll shift it around, but it's like, like people, you know, Scorsese talks about that in directing. He's like, you know, I'm not going to go on a set without a shot list. He goes, I'm going to, I'm going to sit there. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out every single shot before I go into, to do this scene in Mm -hmm. both on paper and in my mind. I may throw the whole thing out when I get there because it just doesn't work because of the logistics of the room or this guy didn't show up or whatever. He goes, but I have a plan. So having, yeah. so there's a certain amount of flexibility with that outline too, which I think I'm sure you're going to talk about. I'm not trying to interrupt you, but I just want to. No, say no, no, it. absolutely. Um, and I would just say uh, the best place to start for anybody who wants to write is use index cards. And that sounds so simplistic, but then you do bullet points, right? You do um, say, you're going to talk about your experience with cancer, you know, um, where were you the moment you heard? And then you bullet point that. And then, you know, who was the person that told you and how did you feel? And, you know, you bullet point these little things and then you bullet point you know was it raining that day what day was it on the map and then just you know you start there and then you'll be surprised because some people have these bibles for outlines you Mm -hmm. don't need to do that you you know just bullet point it and you'll be surprised what comes from the ether what what you'll channel from the days that you've already lived when you want to put it on the paper right it's interesting yeah exactly and it's almost as if when you start opening up one thing I really liked about, and I was going to tell you this, I haven't spoken about mm-hmm. it yet. And I haven't, uh, I haven't finished the book yet, but I'm working through uh, Waiting for Andre, which is which is your latest book, um, fantastic book. Uh, it's Thank it's you. basically this uh, story of Samuel Beckett and Andre the Giant and some conversations that they had, and it's it's based on, it's based on fact, but you kind of ex- you extended it out and you created some fictional elements and so on, right? So um, that's the kind of the setup. I, I'm I'm not doing it justice in a short amount of time, but. My my point was is that the, some of the details that you have in there about the, the smells and the and the like the you know like the steam and like just different things that like different very important little details that really make things come alive and that's the beauty of like when you create I think a an orderly and structured setup for yourself you start to open up these different ideas of the senses and those things open up different memories or different you know, realms into the, I don't know if you want to call it the astral world or the collective unconscious or whatever it is, right? Where you're almost opening up and making a conduit to create like this reality based on, you know, it's a sort of 
fantasy reality, but it's based on reality and based on these these sort of chunks of information that you've you've kind of set down and opened up. It is I don't know. There's a, there's something about having that that strong framework that that it feels like it allows that truth to come through in such a better way. And then you drill down into those details and they kind of bring up other emotions and ideas and, you know, smells and all these different things. I, th- I think it's, it's fantastic. Anyway, you did a fantastic job with that wave foundry, by the way, but, but also, but also in Greyhound, I'm just saying uh, it's, it's neat to be able to, to see that unfold. And I will say that uh, absolutely you have to take the reader there. That's the whole point is that you're taking them on a journey and the journey isn't sufficient if you don't have bird sounds and smells. And if you don't have, if you're standing in a kitchen, what that smells like, or even if you're standing in a bathroom, what that smells like. And I know that sounds horrible for some readers, but you know, when you read the reviews of Greyhound, you'll see, oh my goodness, this guy described every different bathroom you know throughout yeah, the united yeah. states and what the bus smelled like and yeah. what you know all the people smelled like and you know yeah. what that's what happens and when you get involved with like lucid dreaming or any type of dreaming you wake up and you're like oh my goodness i felt like i was there and yeah. i could feel it and i could sense it and i could smell it when you're channeling the story and you know like i said before i channeled my past you know from the old videotapes of my mind to to, to write that book. And, uh, you know, Greyhound was more of leaving things out than creating things. And, and, and when I wrote waiting for Andre, I really felt like for the first hundred pages and I had to stop, I think this is what I told you. I had to stop. I was like, I felt like I was channeling Samuel Beckett. I'm like, this was a guy who I only partially knew about growing up. I, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you know, you see the stage plays and stuff like that on, sure. you know, whether it was on PBS or something you're like, oh, that's really weird. You know, like what he's doing is so abstract. Like, yeah, that's crazy looking. And then waiting you get, for Godot is probably the one people are most familiar with, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And they yeah. do that in prisons and they do that in schools. And, um, you know, he was a guy. Uh, so Samuel Beckett was a man who was really uh he had anxiety to the point where he would give himself rashes like these uh, psychosomatic rashes and these boils on the back of his neck. And the thing was, is like when I wrote all of this, I hadn't read any of his bios. And then I felt so pulled into the story. I stopped at about a hundred pages and I went back and I read everything written about the guy. And I was disturbed to read that. Like, yeah. holy cow, like I really threw the dart and got pretty close but, well, I don't think you threw a dart, but you know, you know what I mean? Cause that was, that was, I, I, you may, may have, but I mean, it seems like what you're talking yeah. about, what you're saying, channeling is probably more closer. Yes. Like you're tapping yeah. into some sort of altered state of consciousness that's allowing you to get into that, that state of mind that's letting those inf- that information in, I, I would argue. But I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, yeah. Again, I don't have the, all the answers, mm-hmm. but I think what you were saying about channeling is almost probably closer, right? I would agree. And I, mm-hmm. and I think every artist out there, I think every artist out there uh, very likely feels the same way, whether they're writing or whether they're painting, uh, you know, like whatever your medium is, uh, you know, you're going to pull something from somewhere else and it's going to help you create your art. Well, they, and, they, I just, I don't, I don't want to interrupt, but I know you'll appreciate this. I just, and I'm sure you've heard this. They, they, yeah. A lot of uh, Keith, uh, Keith Ledger's, uh, friends talk about how he was never the same after he did the joker and that that probably killed him keith ledger excuse me i think i said yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and so, you know, you can channel that, that energy into the point where it's actually somewhat destructive. And it sounds like you were like, wow, this is kind of overwhelming at the, at the beginning. And so you went it back and, and gathered some historical facts to try to verify what was going on, try to maybe give yourself some space or distance. Is that true? Yeah, it is. Um, especially with the, especially with waiting for Andre, because writing about Samuel Beckett, he's a guy where if you had mentioned his name in the press and said anything left or right of what was prescribed about him. And I know he's such an esoteric kind of figure out there. Uh, so I apologize, but, um, you know, you would get a lawsuit from Edward Albee. Edward Albee was the man who was, uh, kind of the executor of his estate and his mm. property yep. and the idea of his work. And Albie went after so many people with lawsuits for presenting Beckett in any light other than what, you know, was funneled through uh, the like, media uh, machine or the marketing, yeah, marketing yeah. view or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was working with Amazon Publishing, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, got to the point at one point where he was so frustrated with publishing after he brought out his his Kindle that he was like, you know what, what uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to have our own publishing company. And him and a few other guys got together and a few other of the of like the women that had been at Amazon since day one and they founded Amazon publishing. I'm not talking about the print on demand stuff where you yeah. do that. I'm talking about their actual publishing house. Yeah. And in uh, 2009, they called me and said, Stefan, what we want to do is we want to launch a publishing house and we want you to be one of the first writers. And I was like, wow, like that's, that's huge. That was, yeah. it was huge. And I think you and I were still talking back then. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was, it knocked me back because, you know, as a, as a writer, you're, you're always trying to get an agent or a publisher or a publicist or someone like that to help yeah. you. And when they decided to make that, uh, that, that move into publishing myself and a few other people were really benefited, but because they were at uh, like war with Macmillan at the time, you didn't see me on NPR. You didn't see me uh, in the New York Times yeah. or in the Post, you know. And I had a bestseller, so you know there was, you know, there was the back and forth, and uh, you know there was some say that a lot of those early writers with Amazon were blacklisted, but you know, um, yeah, I mean that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me. There's definitely a, you know, there, I, I think it's that that sort of changing now but certainly in those earlier days when they were fighting tooth and nail you know mm -hmm. to try to save like the publishers and the classical sort of old school media i think felt very threatened that amazon was moving into their territory and i'm sure oh, that there God, was no. a lot of underground blacklisting and so on going on i mean that would not surprise me in the least oh, it seems that, that today now it's kind of now you know it's an interesting thing now this is just kind of amazon and publishing yourself and doing mm -hmm. all these different things, publishing on demand and all this is such a sort of accepted way of doing things. Now it seems like the publishers have to take it a little more seriously and almost like the, like how sort of the media companies like uh, the record companies and, you know, film mm -hmm. industry and television mm -hmm. industry, they have to take people that are coming from the digital world much more seriously now. And Absolutely. So I think that that gives you, gives you some leverage. Um, Getting back, I want to get back a little bit though to because um, I don't want to turn this into a te technology thing. But getting back to more I of like the mindset of yeah. of being a writer and being an artist, can you talk a little bit more about that and like the persistence that's needed and some of the stuff? Because I know you, you know it hasn't been easy for you to get 
your stuff out there. It's not easy for any writer to get his or her stuff out there. So tell no, it's a little not. about that. Yeah, okay. Uh, it, I would say that right now where we're at is probably the most difficult time in uh, the history of publishing to get published. And, you know, the reason is, is that uh, when you now look you're at talking the stat- traditional publishing or are you talking about like, yes, in, in, so like uh, I want to get, you know, Putnam to publish me or something like that. That's yeah, correct. So, about. yeah. So if you're trying to get Putnam or St. Martin's or anybody like that, yeah. you're going to have a very uh, long road climbing almost the vertical plane. And it's 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 going to be really difficult however it's it's still possible but like what you were saying before it's it's a really good idea to uh engage in self-publishing and put something out there that is credible and that is polished because then uh agents and publicists and other publishers will say well what have you done that you know that like you've done on your own and how well has that done and that's really the question a lot of new authors get and yeah sometimes you know the you know, so sometimes those authors will say, well, you know, uh, I'm selling 500 copies a month or I'm selling 800 copies a month. Or some authors will say, I'm selling 40,000 copies a month. And it's like, wow. Yeah. Like you really don't need a publisher. Yeah. I would just say uh, the best bit for any writer is to, if you're not writing every day and if you're not working on your outline on a regular basis, at least be thinking about it because the process of culminating and brewing it on the stove is equally as important. And um, also know what the trends are, but I would say don't write to trends. Don't, don't write to the market, just write your story and get it as best as it can be so that when you put it out there, that it's polished. Uh, people will take you serious no matter what you've written if it's polished yeah yeah absolutely absolutely i mean do you have uh do you have a schedule for yourself when you're writing do you find that helps you know i come from the uh like carlos castaneda mindset you know (laughs) it's uh, you know find a power spot taking some peyote and you're waiting for the spirit animal to come and give you the story is that what you're saying well you know isn't that what i've been saying the whole time isn't that what i've been saying the whole time that's the key to success exactly anyway i'm sorry that was good that was good no but you know castaneda tells you uh you know and it goes back to what you said about when you're writing about things that you're channeling and they could be dark and heath ledger's journey you know those things can happen and yeah and yeah. you can internalize it in the wrong way so yes you have to be careful and castaneda so you ground yourself I think, is that, right you do you have yeah. to ground yourself you have to find a power spot where in your house where in your life even if it's the like driver's seat of your car like i read an article about one man who wrote uh, like a best-selling novel from the driver's seat of his car in the parking lot outside of his work because his work life was hectic, his home life was hectic, and that was just the only way he could make it work. And he just sat in his driver's seat and he wrote four or five pages a day, and then a year later he was done. Right? So That's fantastic, yeah, yeah. You know, find your power spot and then work from there. Uh, you know, I think and a lot got of people- a, I, I like the point that you made there, though, talking about that car, the car seat thing. It's like you finding it doesn't mean, oh, I've got to be in Sedona in a 5,000 <laughs> square foot, you know, beautiful Taos, you know, Southwest oh. style. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? 
it means taking it means sort of claiming a space and making it sacred in a lot of ways yeah sometimes the two things will coincide like oh here's this beautiful spot in my house that i can sit or here's this great but most often i find and i think this is true for most people today is your life's so hectic there's very little space most people live in pretty small surroundings and you know there's multiple people around all the time you got to carve that sacred space out would you agree Yes, you do. And I will say to like touch on like your hero, which is Henry Miller. He's one of your heroes. Uh, like when I was writing. By the way, I love your treatment <laughs> of him and, and waiting for Andre. I have some severe, yes. severe problems with that. <laughs> that's okay it's okay I, i'm completely joking i love i love i love all the henry miller jokes in there <laughs> he 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 was such a character and He's then i was so gonna say than life he was and yeah. i went up to big sur and i camped out uh and my wife and i we you know both went up there we camped out and the whole purpose was to go to the henry miller library oh, yeah. which was essentially his little cabin up there in big sur where he wrote and so what you're saying is true. When you go into his cabin, I think he was 6'2 or something like that. There's low ceilings in this yeah. cabin. And you're like, oh, he must have had bruises all over his head in this place. Yeah. And it was just a little cramped, confined yeah. wooden shack that was very basic. And yeah, the outdoors and the outside of his place was grand. Sure. But when he was sitting in that little hut with, you know, uh, his wife or his girlfriend at the time, uh, you know, there was nothing there. There was no distractions. There was exactly. little things and there wasn't all the grandiosity that people no, think when no, it comes no. time to write a book. It's there was none of that. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. That's a good point. I think the simplicity of it surprises people sometimes. It's, you know, when you're starting out as a writer, sometimes you, you know, you get this sort of mythology of all the fireworks and excitement. And, you know, you think about Hemingway and all of his adventures and you think you're going to be, you know, you know, jetting around the world and, you know, hanging out mm -hmm. with famous artists and jotting down ideas in your notebook and living, you know, you're going to be, you know, chilling with Kanye and then talking yeah, about it's not, it. Yeah, it's not, not how it happen. works. It's like, no, not at that's, all. that's a socialite. You're a writer. Yes. A writer is cloistered away. You know, yes, you can get out and hang with people and yes, you can live that lifestyle. But the thing is the, the actual writing itself occurs in seclusion it occurs mm -hmm. in the dark. There's a germination going on. It's like you're planting seeds in the dark. And yes. generally speaking, you know, you've got these very simple, small. And you, you and I, I, I think, you, do you work on a yellow, like a yellow pad? Do you write your stuff out by hand? Is that I do, yeah. I mean, I uh, handwrite everything out longhand in yeah. cursive. That's like the best way for me to channel. And, you know, that goes back to what we talked about before about all of the kids and our era versus this new era, which yep. is, you know, they're going back in the school districts. They're getting rid of the Chromebook learning because they've tested yeah, they, it. They need to. Yeah. And they've realized it doesn't work. So yep. even my son, they're like, okay, now we're doing uh, a cursive and here's all these big, thick textbooks. And yes. he's like, he couldn't yes. even carry them home the first day. My heart day. soars yeah. when I hear yeah. that. Oh, oh yeah. They, I, yeah. All the teachers have had enough. They were like, none of this works. It's not working. And, you know, the, all of these shortcuts and thinking like this Bill Gates idea that technology is going to is going to, you know, win over the <laughs> third world or whatever they're yeah. thinking. It's a bunch of nonsense. It the is. reality of life is that learning and education are a process that take place from within educo it comes from within that's the last yes. 
you know, yep. you're not putting something into these kids. I mean, you do have to learn and memorize and you've got to work through and slog through all the challenges, but what you're really doing, it's more, it's more archetypal. You're invigorating and enlivening, you know, intelligence that inherently exists within a child. And in order to do that, it requires hard work. You can't just look it you up online. You can't skip yeah. all of the challenges. And there's something about have, toting a big analog, heavy ass book around you know, and, and slogging through and memorizing and writing things out by hand that you just cannot replicate on a computer. You can't. No, no, absolutely. And uh, I think all of the school districts are going this direction yeah. if all of the ones for the people listening around them haven't already. And I live in Southern California. I'm in Indio where it's the perpetual uh day of sunshine where it's like 75 in the yeah. day and it's like 50 at night and it's yeah. beautiful. But then two months out of the year, it's 125 degrees. Right. So <laughs> bro, you're preaching to the converted over here. You know, I'm in <laughs> yeah. so, you know, so out, you know, so out here where I'm at, uh, you know, a lot of the school districts are almost rural. Yeah. And, you know, you think about Palm Springs and all that, you think that it's like glamorous. It's not. It's it's golf clubs and it's uh, golf courses and country clubs. And it's almost like a rural set of people yeah. living yeah. in a small town. And, sure. all of, exactly. yeah, and all of the high schools and the middle schools have gone back now or going back to handwriting where it comes from the brain and it comes through the pen and it's on the paper. Yeah. And then, you know, you read in the book and you read it aloud and then you answer the questions. Yeah. And, it's, it's, and yeah. you've got to memorize things. There is, there is something yeah. about the act of memorizing that I think is just magical. It's like we've, we've gotten so we've gotten so lazy that we can't even remember phone numbers anymore. And you think mm -hmm. about when you were young and this, again, if you know, you're a younger listener, this is not to put you down, but if you, you, we used to have to literally remember every single phone number, every address, every, everything you had to remember it all. You know, oh, I yeah. can tell you my phone mm -hmm. number from when I was nine years old <laughs> and that's, you know, I, that's can't, fun. Yeah. I mean, that's it's, there's something powerful about memorizing things, memorizing poetry, memorizing, you know, uh, literature and, you know, passages from scripture and so on, what, whatever it is, it, there's something mm -hmm. really powerful about, about that, that act. And it, it creates, it's like a form of meditation. It's a form of concentration that you just can't get without doing it. It is, it is. And how are you going to know about the classics and the legends and the myths if you don't put at least some of that, including the poetry into your brain and carry it with you because you will need those things in an emergency, no matter what kind of life you're living. Yep. And if you're living a life where, uh, you know, you're doing more than, you know, just kind of like going through where you get up and you go to work and you come home and even that's hard. Even that is hard by that's itself. Um, yeah. Yeah. But if you're out there and you are really pushing it in your life, you're going to need those things. You're going to need poetry in your mind. You're yeah. going to need legends in your mind. You're going to need myths in your life. Yeah, mind. exactly. And, you know, like, so we were talking about Campbell earlier. I went through my whole life. I'm 50 now. I avoided Campbell and I don't know why, but every time he came up, I'm like, that's, that's maybe a little too heavy right now. Mm. Let me come back to him 
almost like if there's a band out there that you don't want to listen to, like say, imagine, I know you love Led Zeppelin. Imagine saying, um, <laughs> thank you for referencing yeah. Zeppelin. By the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know imagine going through your life until you're like 40 and you're like okay now i'm gonna sit down and listen to all of the led zeppelin albums beginning to end and hear yeah. them all whereas if they ever came on the radio before you would change it right that was what That's, i was doing I hope, Campbell, yeah. yeah and i hope you're speaking metaphorically when you say that because that would be blasphemy to turn zeppelin <laughs> off on the radio by the way yeah, yeah. There is a thing that happened in the 80s, and it happened with a lot of the rock stars, and specifically like Robert Plant and Bono, and uh, uh, they all said uh, repeatedly and almost in unison, we have to look forward with what's happening with rock and roll because when you get in your car there's so much classic rock being replayed and replayed and replayed mm. you can only go backwards with that yeah and i think i think even mccartney said that too i think they were all on the same page yeah and so when you hear that and you're younger you're like okay well i can only hear stairway to heaven so many times where I have to then tell myself, okay, change the channel. Like I, you know, my punch card on, on like stairway is been done. <laughs> and my punch card on like the Joshua tree, it's done. Okay. Let's move forward. And there's a truth to that. <laughs> there's, there's a truth to that. But... Well, you know, what's interesting though. One thing you can do besides uh, that all moving forward is one way, you know, creating new, new sort of new forms and new styles. And then the other thing is kind of mining, back to the sources where like zeppelin came from and stuff and going back like deep into like the americana uh mm -hmm. you know kind of songbook and you're going back to like listening to woody guthrie and listening to like Sunhouse and lightning hopkins yep. and like going back to the roots of you know blues and and jazz and, you know what i mean and really yeah, all that's going cool. pre pre-rock and roll and hearing where rock and roll came from and then maybe trying to create a new iteration of that out of that like that framework but but no but you're, you're absolutely right um campbell though speaking of campbell that's it's interesting because that uh, you know campbell is really how i got into any of this stuff from i mean it's very close to the beginning of my my studies of of, of any of the spiritual or religious material is that i saw you know that that PBS special with Bill Moyers, uh, The Power of mm -hmm. Myth. Yes. Um, when I was a kid, it was on PBS, and it just blew my mind. I was such a nerdy kid. Like, I, who, what kind of kid sits there and watches Bill Moyers? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, it, that was a benefit. Obviously, it that was, was a huge. benefit. Because ever since... Well, I'll tell you this, Jason, because from the first day I met you, I think I said to your brother, Jordan, I think I said, you know, your brother is an old soul. And, I, and I've stood by that the yeah. whole time because, you know, you are. And I think when you get exposed to something like Joseph Campbell and you think about it and then you think about how the world is constructed yeah. and why the world is constructed and the origin stories that motivate people, you're like, oh, okay. Like, and so when I wrote Greyhound, I didn't, I, I wasn't thinking about that. I was, I think we talked about how, uh, uh, so you and Chris did a podcast about, uh, like return to zero yeah. and that, that struck a strong chord with me because, you know, when you go into the kitchen and the place is dirty and you want to cook dinner, you got to clean the place up first. You're not improving it. You're setting it back to a neutral state. You're setting it to zero. Yeah. And 
and then you make dinner for everybody and everyone loves you and they and, and they're happy again but the place is a wreck and so then you got to set it to zero one more time and that's yeah. that's the meditative process of everything that's what you do when you write a book that's you know that's that's the whole nutshell and when i was writing greyhound that was how i wrote greyhound when you get to the end of the book the character has returned to zero he's not better than there's no uh hero's journey ending because i wasn't aware and and maybe if i was aware i would have ended it differently and i think you know that's something to think about when we're writing our stories are we going to have that kind of cycle that like joseph campbell talks about or are we going to have like the more kind of naturalist like buddhist state where the character he's not improved or so she's not improved or not made worse but they've at least been put from a negative into a neutral state well yeah yeah absolutely i think though that you know once uh you know the interesting thing about that hero's journey is obviously it's kind of you know it's 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 somewhat contrived and you've got you know you're pulling out these different states and kind of looking at this trajectory of of stuff but you know, it's an interesting thing how how you look at it and where you stop on the continuum of it and so on. It's really, in in reality, if you look at the whole hero's journey, you know, it's a cyclical sort of a thing where it's a return back, you know. Mm-hmm. But what happens is, you know, what the interesting thing is, and you say, you know, return to zero, you know, the zero, of course, is like the, you know, the primal sort of no thing, the nothingness from, from which we come, it's like the matrix upon which everything is built, right? It's even zero is before one is, right? So it's yeah. before there's any kind of singularity whatsoever. So really that's our, our natural state. And that is the goal to get back mm-hmm. to that, right? So, but, you know, you see that, that kind of journey in the, in, like in the tarot cards, for example. So the fool is card number zero. The fool goes oh, through wow. this whole journey through the 22 tarot trumps, you know, through the, through the, the, the major arcana, and then basically comes back to zero. So you have mm-hmm. this whole, you know, sort of continuation <laughs> of this, this journey, this hero's journey that the fool goes on, starting with number one, the magician and ending with, you know, number 21, the world. And in between, there's all these sort of archetypal steps on it, but the fool remains the fool. Not that he's foolish, yeah. But it's no thing. It's nothing. It's something primal. And so you're going mm-hmm. forward, having all this you know, journey, and then coming back to the same place in essence, but with a new knowledge of it. You well, know what I mean? That's, yeah, that's, that's the difference. And I yeah. think that that, that that trajectory does does occur, though, in, in, in Greyhound. You know, it's, it's subtle. It's subtle. Mm-hmm. But I mean, mm-hmm. you know, even if you end in this zero state, it is it's a there's you know what i'm saying there's there's some it's an interesting thing it's just like the whole cyclical nature of it you know there's always absolutely there's always another you know another spiraling upward i guess as it were no and that's mind-blowing what you said about the whole tarot uh, like journey and you know you're only gonna take that and you're gonna use that later or you're gonna use that into whatever you're building right now yeah Um, you know, well, and that's where uh, that framework, that you know, that knowledge of mythology and that understanding mm-hmm. of these stories comes into play, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, I think a lot of the talks I've given, uh, I've always enjoyed. Uh, you know, I used, uh, you know, book tours and book signings, and you know, you do that with adults, and you go to uh, book fairs and whatever, and you shake hands and you sign books, and that's all well and good. And I think every writer dreams of doing those things. That 
that all those things that we think about that would make us great writers, those things take a toll yeah. on on everybody's lives. Yeah, and exactly. I've, you know, I've I've pulled back in probably the last five, six years. And, you know, I only talk to schools because it's a lot of fun. And, you know, the kids send me a lot of emails. And then, you know, sometimes they do like one man or like two man uh, like uh, stage productions. And I think somebody at the University of Michigan did that. They did a stage production of Greyhound. Oh, and it awesome. was really touching. Yeah, no, it's yeah that's really touching stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that goes back to, I think, what we were saying uh, about, uh, you know, where the kids are today versus where we were when we were younger. Yeah. And it's, it's good to see that a lot of the kids that have kind of grown up in this matrix world where everything is on all the time, they want to get back to. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I call that uh, like the uh, like midnight of the old world. Sometimes when I talk to uh, like uh, all the audiences, yeah. all, you know, like all the young kids, especially the high school levels, because they, you know, they, understand this they understand the what the pull of that? social we media talking about that what time what would you call the midnight of the old world well the midnight of the old world was literally may 12th 1995 right Amazing. if you love it yeah yeah like if you could think about it for a moment close your eyes as you're listening uh i want you to, you know i want you to envision a friday night Back in 1995, May 12th, what do you think you were doing back then? It's the second week of May. There was no internet to log on to at that point. Okay, you were probably getting ready to go out for the night to see your friends. Maybe you were going off to work. Maybe you were going to go out and go see a band or like you were going to go skateboard in the park or ride your bike. You were going to go do something outside, but you're going to go out into the world and experience it still on the analog level. Like, yeah. you know, like we wrote about in Graham, yeah, like yeah. we wrote about in Waiting for Andre. And the digital world hadn't yet happened. TCP IP came online like Monday, Tuesday morning, the next week, right? AOL had switched the next week from a monthly, no, excuse me, from a, from an hourly rate to the monthly yeah, rate. And when right. that monthly yeah. rate hit, then you started getting all those discs in the mail, yeah, right? Exactly. Like, you know, log on. And then it, that's when it spiraled and began. So then the summer of 1995 is when all of this kind of kicked off and the world changed and it shifted, mm -hmm. right? And then everybody was, you know, in chat rooms, everyone was, you know, uh, experiencing the internet for the first time. And everybody born after May 12th, 1995, You've grown up in the digital yeah, world. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is why these kids now are saying, what, what could life be without all of this? Yeah, that's a, that's a, great, a great point. And I think that, you know, it's something to kind of, for, for our listeners to think about is maybe trying to get back into that mindset of, you know, simpler times. And, you know, you can create, you can create a sort of, connection to that by first imagining it and bringing yourself back to it if you've lived that long and if not then you know you've got to use your imagination somewhat and start thinking about well what if i wasn't toting this phone around everywhere i went and this and i what if i wasn't mm -hmm. sitting on the couch you know watching netflix and messing around with my ipad at the same time while at the same time probably taking a phone call or sending some texts on my phone it's like you know, there's, Correct. if you start to strip that away and think, what if I didn't have all this, what might I be doing? 
And it's, you know, it's like, well, maybe I'd go to the park. Maybe I'd go actually watch a movie. Maybe I'd go to the zoo or go to an art gallery or go browse around a bookstore if there's still any open, you know. Which, yeah, uh, you know, back in, yeah. then there, uh, so back in 1995, I spent a lot of time, I think, in L.A. going to movies, yeah. uh, going to the Getty. When back then it was the Getty Villa, right? It wasn't yet the Getty Center. And there was I love the Getty Villa, uh, by the way. Uh, what a yeah. fantastic oh, museum. Yeah. Yeah, it's just gorgeous over there. And, you know, for all the people listening, you know, these are things to do when you come to L.A. Go to the Getty Villa. I mean, obviously, these things are free. and yep. You can go uh, up, up up to the Getty on top of the hill and take the tram. But go to the Getty Villa because you don't hear about the Getty that, that Villa, often, by the that's... way, is a, is a recreation of a Roman of a Roman villa with complete with Roman and Greek artwork and statues and gardens. And it is unbelievable. And you've got yes, to actually I'm... book in advance to go there but it is free it's an amazing it's an yep. amazing experience and it gets you in touch with your you know the ancient our ancient history and where we you know come from and you know for in terms of european culture and modern culture i mean that's it all is coming from that you know greco-roman influence you know out of europe mm-hmm. in terms of modern culture so it's in, it's interesting to go and experience and see you know how they were interpreting things so anyway i don't that's it's a side side note but yeah it's like the, getting back in touch with those sort of things and going out and really viscerally experiencing the world is a huge and important thing, especially for writers, for artists, for creative people, for spiritual people, because it's so easy to get up in our own heads. Uh, yeah. So we've got to get out and actually experience that world and mix it up with people and stuff. And it's not just about like the entertainment quality of it. it's the experience of of being in those spots, going to the beach and sitting there and like, you know, and listening to the ocean and smelling the, you know, the, the, the salty air and, and, and feeling and all these different things that get you back in touch with the body, mind and, and soul and spirit. You know what I mean? Well, that's what the inspiration yeah. is for your continued life. You know, that's, you know, that's for today and also for tomorrow, you know, and it, and that's why we always try to get back in touch with where we come from and where we've been. That's why things like 23 and me are so huge right yeah. now. People want to know where they came from and who their ancestors were yeah, and they want to know. Stuff. So yeah, so, so do I have somebody on Wikipedia that I'm related to? That would be great, right? And you look at their that picture, is and you're the, like, wow, that, that looks is like the, me. That is the pinnacle of it when you say, "Do I have somebody on Wikipedia that I'm related to?" That's the key. By the way, are you on Wikipedia? Uh, I'm not on Wikipedia, but I do have some ancestors on Wikipedia. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go and put up, a, I'm gonna go and put up a Stephen page there and a Stephen Piper page oh. on Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. And I, you know, I just, I, I'll tell you what, you know, I've in, in, in the last few years, am I still with you? Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay. In the last few years, I've scaled back social media quite a bit. Uh, and you know, I'm kind of following suit with a lot of what I'm seeing with the younger generation yeah. where they're making the decision to step back to the old world. And we're literally 25 years into the internet now at this point from, you know, I think this coming May, because right now the show is being recorded. It's, uh, it's like the middle of October. Yeah. It's a Thursday. This coming May, someone's going to talk about it. Someone's going to, it's going to be in the papers or on the news. This coming May 12th, and it's going to be 25 years wow. of the internet yeah. and someone's going to point this out and people are going to open their eyes and go, Oh, it's been, it's, it's been 25 years. So now what's happening? They should go. I stole that idea from Stefan Piper. 
That's what they should say. And they should should just punch themselves in the face because that's your idea, man. And we recorded it here today. Well, and so so what we could do is we could just like flood the market with a bunch of podcasts and we can title them May 12th, 1995. We could just own it. Exactly. And then next, and then next May, we'll all see a bump. bump. Yeah. That's, I mean, speaking of that, you know, I like the, the spirit of, you know, even though we're using technology, obviously I keep it very low tech for this show. It's like a, you know, phone and my, my, you know, my mic and, you know, this app, mm-hmm. it, you know, but this, the act of listening to a podcast is kind of analogy unto itself. I mean, if there's not a ton of bells and whistles, we keep this show very simple. I do very little editing, you know, and it's just people talking mm-hmm. and sharing yeah. ideas. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, is fantastic about some of this, this stuff is that you can, you know, you can still propagate these kinds of, these kinds of things and have discussions and dialogues without the sound bites and the anger and people yelling and screaming about their point of view and all this stuff and creating divisiveness. We just talk. It's okay. Well, yeah. And yeah. And, and, and I'll say two things on that one. I think there's a lot of people out there like me that have waited a long time to engage in podcasts. Uh, podcasts used to be very different. And that's why I think people like myself and some others have, you know, often and stepped back from engaging in podcasts. Because if you think back to like the early beginnings, it was like This American Life and S Town and some of those other really good podcasts. And I'm not knocking those guys. But more, more or, produced and more, more edited and stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And like you could tell that they had a conversation over the phone with somebody and they were. But then they present it in a like, like this documentary style where, you know, they're talking and they're telling you about, you know, Jim Barnes was living in Silmar and he had a collection of Barbie dolls. And then Jim <laughs> Barnes comes on and then he talks for three That's minutes. That's probably or, an exact show, too. You're probably pulling uh, yeah. that up from memory somewhere <laughs> yes. deep in the recesses of your memory, by the way. <laughs> right, right, right. And then, and then they give a, like a, you know, like a small snippet. But you can yeah. tell when they were talking with Jim Barnes. Yeah. He yeah. was expecting this kind of a thing. God only and, knows what he was, yeah, what he was uh, thinking he was yeah. going to get into, right? <laughs> yeah. And when you're invested in listening to a conversation, I think people eat this up. And on 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 like the second point, the second point is real simple, is that when I look at my book sales, and I'm not like throwing this out there to you know, uh, talk about myself or, you know, try to come across in the wrong way, you know, so forgive me if that's what that sounds like. It's not. It's to convey information that most writers don't talk about. And that's what my main point is. I'm a very direct person. So when I talk about the sales numbers, I'm telling you so that you could have an expectation, Um, especially when you have like um, a really good book deal or even a marginal book deal, right? Mm -hmm. So then when you look at the audio book numbers, and you're seeing over the course of years that your audio book numbers are starting to overtake your print or your ebook numbers. You're like, yeah. wow, more people are listening to the books because this is just, it seems like the evolution of the word is changing. We you used to handwrite. It's going yeah. back though. It is. It's it going is. back to sitting around a campfire, staring into the, into the flames and hearing a story right? in because- a weird way. There's something yeah, primal, then, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the myth of the storyteller is still alive in all of us. And that's yeah. what we're looking for. Yeah. That's what we're looking for, I think. And, uh, you know, people come up to me and they're like, oh, I, I read your book. And I'm like, really? And they're like, oh, I just loved the guy who narrated it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> who did, like, by the way, who did the uh, who did the narration for you? Is that something Amazon set up or is that something you set up? Yeah, that uh, that was something uh, that Amazon set up. And it's funny that you bring him up. His name is Nick Podal and he narrated both. With Greyhound and um, uh, Fugue State, which is uh, what happens later, like maybe six, seven years later after Greyhound. It doesn't pick directly back up. And I did that for a reason. Um, but Nick Podal, he's like the number one guy for audiobook narration. And I don't know how I was lucky enough, but, you know, the universe always treats me well and I'm thankful. And he narrates both of my books and everyone just eats it up and when they teach it in yeah and so when they teach it in a classroom they literally play the audio and the kids follow along with the audio and the text that's what they do interesting yeah well that's fantastic that's fantastic you know speaking of that i need to uh every time anytime i'm talking to people these days about my book uh the, the meditation book if you can worry you can meditate um It's a great piece of writing, by the way. I just wanted to say on air that I really appreciated uh, what you had done there. And you really put it on uh, a really uh, clear level for people who have been in the sciences of like meditation and uh, self-help or even the esoteric uh, like information sets like what you deal with. A lot of people have, have seen that come and go a lot, but you know, you talk and you write in a way that from page one, you can really key in and it's really personal and it's really personable. And I, I loved what you wrote. And I, I think that's why you and I started talking again. I reached out to you and I was very impressed with that. And I, that it does a service to make things like that real for people rather than just to, you know, cause a lot of folks, they, they, and I'm not knocking them either, but they build it up into a really strong image of something else. I don't know yeah. how to explain that. No, I, I know, I know what you mean. Thank you, by the way. I appreciate you saying yeah. that. Um, yeah. It, it becomes something very, very abstract and you know, that there's, there's room and place for, for that sort of writing about meditation. I'm all about the esoteric and the cold aspects and the, you know, the mystical visions and all this stuff. But, you know, for most people just getting started, that's, it's, it's kind of inconsequential. It's like trying to learn, you know, abstract math or, you know, work with imaginal numbers before you know how to add. You know, it, it's, yeah. it really is pointless. I don't know calculus. So I'm, you know, I, I'm not, if I, I, I should say this, I don't, <laughs> you know, if I barely can add and multiply and subtract, <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, understand calculus. And, you know, there's a sort of graded path in a sense. So I try to, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a challenge because I'm, you know, I'm used to reading that kind of material all the time. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of get back to beginner's mind and go back to zero in a sense and say, okay, well, if I was first starting out, what would I need? And that's kind of how I, how I tried to approach it. So, you know, you kind of strip, strip away a lot of the, the, the stuff, but, um, but thank you. Um, anyway, I was going to say that I need to do an audio book because people are constantly saying, Oh, you got to do an audio book. You got to do an audio book. And it's like, you know, I, have I to, would agree. It's, I would it does agree. seem to be the thing of the day, isn't it? So. It is. And I think I heard someone else talking about how the word has changed so much that audio and the way 
that people are getting information. Yeah. The brains have evolved to a point where they want to hear it rather than read it because of the speed of which they can take it in seems to be, this is the right frequency. Mm. Like the, you yeah. know, it, it, you know, it's like the voice is where we're at. It may be because there's so many distractions. I also Maybe, think, yeah. I also think, you know, you, people aren't reading as much and it's one of these kind of skills that you do have to develop in order to enjoy it. It's kind of a, you know, one of those more makes more things that we were talking about. It's like the more I read, the more I want to read, the less I yes. read, the less I want to read. You know what I'm saying? I would agree. I would yeah. agree. So I don't want to uh, end this conversation because I'm enjoying it so much, but I'm noticing that we're like an hour and something, hour and 15 okay. minutes into this. And I don't want to keep you on all day. And also we usually try to keep these, you know, an hour, an hour and 15, but we could go three, four hours. I, I guarantee you. <laughs> I guarantee you. I would need I can make time. Coffee, but we, we could go on and on. <laughs> but it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Do you have any parting things that you would like to leave the listener with? Uh I just want to say a lot of the times, uh, you know, when you're trying to engage in any type of artistic endeavor, you want to root yourself in what's real, like what we were just talking about with the way you approach meditation. I approach writing and storytelling in the same way. Root whatever you're doing in whatever is real around you. And I think you'll have much better success than going at it from a really vague kind of uh, imagine, you know, I don't want to say imaginative, but um, uh, high expectation, fantastical viewpoint that the world has given you. Yeah, the world exactly. has given you, you know, do what feels right to you and just keep it, you know, you just keep it simple. And yeah. then you'll find much more success doing that. And, you know, I talk to people and they say, yeah, I've written this book and it's 1500 pages. Okay, well, um, you know, I always say, is it 12 point font? These are simple things, right? <laughs> Is it is it twelve point font? Is it like double space? It's, it's fifteen hundred pages of seventy two point font, double or, spaced. Okay. Or, or 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 it's like fifteen hundred pages of eight point font, single space. <laughs> oh <laughs> man! Oh okay, oh, you got something oh. there. Yeah, well you know. That's so, a lot. So of try writing. to keep. Yeah. Uh. yeah. So try to keep it at three hundred, and then that's that's the story, you know. And a lot I, of people. I, it's true. And, you know, it's, it's so easy to, to, to overwrite, you know, it really mm -hmm. is. It's very difficult to say things in a concise way, isn't it? I would agree. I would agree. But, um, so thank you for having me on. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoy, uh, so your show, when you talk with Chris, I really get a lot out of that. And Thanks I think so everyone, yeah. And I think everyone listening to this now, if you haven't listened to the return to zero episode, check that out. That's a really beautiful episode that, uh, that like Chris and Jason put together, but, uh, I thank appreciate you that. So Stefan yeah. Piper is the man we've been speaking to today. Please get his books. Uh, read Greyhound that is available on Amazon and read all his books, but uh, particularly uh, Greyhound and, and waiting for Andre, which is his latest, his latest work about Samuel Beckett and Andre the giant. We didn't even talk about Andre the giant, but that's a whole, that's a whole nother <laughs> no show unto itself. That, that amazing, beautiful man. So yep. um, check out his work. I don't, you know, you're not really into social media much. So I would, I would say for the listeners, they can follow you on, uh, on Amazon. That's a good yeah. way to find you, right? Anything yeah. else? I mean, I have, a, I have like a personal website. Uh, you can email me or get a hold of me there if you need to. Uh, I often do Skype chats for classrooms. So, what is that? Uh, um, 
Oh, uh, and it's uh, just uh, stephanpiper at gmail.com. Is that what <laughs> For a second, you thought I meant, what is that? Like, explain to me the concept of a personal artist. <laughs> Sorry. Because I'm very confused as to me. what this yeah. is. That's what you did, didn't you? No, you, I just, you, you know what, I'm like, old. What the fuck is he saying? <laughs> I, I am old. I am old. And, no, you no, know, no. and the brain starts slowing down, my friend. That's, that's <laughs> Listen yeah. to me. I am the same age, yes. and I am, I am there with you. We are plodding <laughs> along in mud as best we can. Anyway, it's it's stephanpiper.com, right? Is that correct? And it's de- so yes, www.stephanpiper.com. All right, my friend, we are uh, we are cutting out actually at the end here, so I may or may not get to say goodbye to you. Uh, but I thank you so much for coming on. Thank you everyone for listening. Please support us if you can at anchor.fm slash cosmic eye check out stefan piper's website or find him on amazon.com and check out my book uh, if you can worry you can meditate on amazon.com thanks again for joining us have a great week goodbye and god bless